0: Chapter 2 Of The Million Dollar Suitcase by Alice McGowan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Million Dollar Suitcase, Chapter 2 Sight Unseen. In the squabble and snatch of argument, given dignity only because it concerned the recovery of near a million dollars, we seem to have lost Worth Gilbert entirely. He kept his seat that chair he had taken instantly when old Dykeman seemed to wish to have it denied him. But he sat on it as though it were a lone rock by the sea. I didn't suppose he was hearing what we said any more than he would have heard the mewing of a lot of gulls, when, on a sudden silence, he burst out, "'For heaven's sake, if you men can't decide on anything, sell me the suitcase. I'll buy it as it is and clean up the job.' "'Sell you the suitcase.' "'Clate suitcase?' They sat up on the edge of their chairs, bewildered, incredulous, hostile. Such a bunch is very like a herd of cattle. Anything they don't understand scares them. Even the attorney studied young Gilbert with curious interest. I was mortal glad I hadn't said what was the fact, that, with the naming of the enormous sum lost, I was certain this was a sizable conspiracy with long-laid plans.' They were mistrustful enough, as Whipple finally questioned, "'Is this a bona fide offer, Captain Gilbert?' And Dykeman came in after him. "'A gambler's chance at stolen money. Is that what you figure on buying, sir? Is that it?' And heavy-faced Anson asked bluntly, "'Who's to set the price on it, you or us? There's practically a million dollars in that suitcase. It belongs to the bank.' If you got an idea that you can buy up the chance of it for about fifty per cent, you're mistaken. We have too much faith in Mr. Boyne and his agency for that. Why, at this moment, one of his men may have laid hands on Clate or found the man who planned—' He stopped with his mouth open. I saw the same suspicion that had taken his breath away grip momentarily every man at the table. A hint of what it was in Whipple's voice as he asked, gravely, "'Do you bind yourself to pursue Clate and bring him, if possible, to justice?' "'Bind myself to nothing. I'll give eight hundred thousand dollars for that suitcase.' He fumbled in his pocket with an interrogative look at Whipple, and—' "'May I smoke in here?' and lit a cigarette without waiting a reply. Banking institutions take some pains to keep in their employ no young men who are known to play poker, but a poker face at that board would have acquired more than its share of dignity.' As it was, you could see, almost as though written there, the agonizing doubt running right in their faces, as to whether Worth Gilbert was a young hero coming to the bank's rescue, or a conman playing them for suckers. It was Knapp who said at last, huskily, I think we should close with Captain Gilbert's offer. The cashier had a considerable family, and I knew his recently bought Pacific Avenue home was not all paid for. We might consider it, Whipple glanced doubtfully at his associates. If everything else fails, this might be a way out of the difficulty for us. If everything else failed, President Whipple was certainly no poker player. Worth Gilbert gave one swift look about the ring of faces, pushed a brown, muscular left hand out on the tabletop, glancing at the wristwatch there, and suggested brusquely, Think it over. My offer holds for fifteen minutes. Time to get all the angles of the case. Huh, gentlemen! I seem to have started something. For the directors and stockholders of the Van S. Avenue Savings Bank were at that moment almost as yappy and snappy as a wolf-pack. Dykman wanted to know about the one hundred and eighty-seven thousand-odd dollars not covered by Worth's offer. Did they lose that? Knapp was urging that Clayt's bond, when they'd collected, would shade the loss. Whipple reminding them that they'd have to spend a good deal, maybe a great deal, on the recovery of the suitcase. Money that Worth Gilbert would have to spend instead if they sold to him. And finally, an ugly mutter from somewhere, that maybe young Gilbert wouldn't have to spend so very much to recover that suitcase. Maybe he wouldn't. The tall young fellow looked thoughtfully at his watch now and again. Cummings and I chipped into the thickest of the row, and convinced them that he meant what he said, not only by his offer, but by its time limit. "'How about publicity, if this goes?' Whipple suddenly interrogated, raising his voice to top the pack-yell. "'Even with eight hundred thousand dollars in our vaults, a run's not a thing that does a bank any good.' "'I suppose,' stretching up his head to see across his noisy associates, "'I suppose, Captain Gilbert, you'll be retaining Boyne's agency?' "'In that case, do you give him the publicity he wants?' "'Course he does,' Dykeman hissed. "'Can't you see? Damn fool wants his name in the papers. Rotten story like this, about some lunatic buying a suitcase with a million in it, would ruin any bank if it got into print.' Dykeman's breath gave out. "'And it's—it's it's just the kind of story the accursed yellow press would eat up. "'Let it alone, Whipple.' Let his damned offer alone. There's a joker in it somewhere. There won't be any offer in about three minutes. Cummings quietly reminded them. If you'd asked my opinion, and giving you opinions is what you pay me a salary for, I'd have said close with him while you can. Wibble gave me an agonized glance. I nodded affirmatively. He put the question to vote in a breath. The eyes had it old Dykeman shouting after them in an angry squeak. "'No! No!' and adding as he glared about them. "'I'd like to be able to look a newspaper in the face, but never again, never again!' I made my way over to Gilbert and stood in front of him. "'You've bought something, boy,' I said. "'If you mean to keep me on as your detective, you can assure these people that I'll do my darndest to give information to the police and keep it out of the papers.' What's happened here won't get any further than this room, through me. You're hired, Jerry Boyne. Gilbert slapped me on the back affectionately. After all, he hadn't changed so much in his four years over there. I began to see more traces of the enthusiastic youngster to whom I used to spin detective yarns in the grill at the St. Francis, or on the rocks by the cliff house. Sure, we'll keep it out of the papers. Suits me. I'd rather not pose as the fool soon parted from his money." The remark was apropos. Knapp had feverishly beckoned the lawyer over to a little side-desk. They were down at it, the light snapped on, writing, trying to frame up an agreement that would hold water. One by one, the others went and looked on nervously as they worked. By the time they'd finished something, everybody'd seen it but Worth. And when it was finally put in his hands, all he seemed to notice was the one point of the time they'd set for payment. It'll be quite some stunt to get the amount together by ten o'clock Monday, he said slowly. There are securities to be converted. He paused and looked up with a queer hush. Securities? croaked Dykeman. To be converted? Oh! Yes, in some surprise. Or would the bank prefer to have them turned over in their present form? Again, a strained moment, broken by Whipple's nervous— "'Maybe that would be better,' and a quickly suppressed chuckle from Cummings. The agreement was in duplicate. It gave Worth Gilbert complete ownership of a described sole-leather suitcase and its listed contents, and, as he had demanded, it bound to him nothing save the payment. Cummings said, frankly, that the transaction was illegal from end to end, and that any assurance as to the bank ceasing to pursue Clayt would amount to compounding a felony.' Yet we all signed solemnly, the lawyer and I as witnesses. A financier's idea of indecency is something about money which hasn't formerly been done. The directors got sorer and sorer as Worth Gilbert's cheerfulness increased. "'Acts as though it were a damn crap-game,' I heard Dykeman muttering to Silsby, who came back vacuously. "'Craps? They said our boys did shoot craps a good deal over there— well, uh, they were risking their lives. And that's as near as any of them came, I suppose, to understanding how a weariness of the little interweaving plans of tamed men had pushed Worth Gilbert into carelessly staking his birthright on a chance that might lend interest to life, a hazard big enough to breeze the staleness out of things for him. We were leaving the bank, Gilbert and I ahead, Cummings right at my boy's shoulder, the others holding back to speak together, bitterly enough, if I am any guesser, when Worth said suddenly, "'You mentioned in there it's being illegal for the bank to give up the pursuit of Clate." Seems funny to me, but I suppose you know what you're talking about. Anyhow,' he was lighting another cigarette, and he glanced sharply at Cummings across it, "'Anyhow, they won't waste their money hunting Clate now, should you say? That's my job. That's where I get my cash back.' Oh, that's where, is it? The lawyer's dry tone might have been regarded as humorous. We stood in the deep doorway, hunching coat-collars, looking into the foggy street. Worth's interest in life seemed to be freshening moment by moment. Yes, he agreed briskly. I'm going to keep you and Boyne busy for a while. You'll have to show me how to hustle the payment for those Shylocks, and Jerry's got to find the suitcase, so I can eat. But I'll help him." Cummings stared at the boy. "'Gilbert,' he said. "'Where are you going? Right now, I mean.' "'To Boyne's office.' We stepped out to the street where the line of limousines waited for the old fellows inside, my own Battleship Gregg Roadster, pretty well hammered but still a mighty capable machine, far down at the end. As Worth moved with me toward it, the lawyer walked at his elbow. "'Seat for me?' He glanced at the car. I have a few words of one syllable to say to this young man, counsel, that I ought to get in as early as possible. I looked at little Pete dozing behind the wheel and answered, Take you all right if I could drive, but I sprained my thumb on a window lock looking over that room at the St. Dunstan. I'll drive. Worth had circled the car with surprising quickness for so large a man. I saw him on the other side, waiting for Pete to get out so he could get in. Curious, the intimate, understanding look he gave the monkey as he flipped a coin at him with, "'Buy something to burn, kid.' Pete's idea of Worth Gilbert would be quite different from that of the directors in there. After all, human beings are only what we see them from our varying angles. Pete slid down, looking back to the last at the tall young fellow who was taking his place at the wheel. Cummings and I got in, and we were off. There, in the machine, my new boss driving, Cummings sitting next to him, I at the further side, began the keen, cool probe after a truth, which to me lay very evidently on the surface. Anyone, I would have said, might see with half an eye that Worth Gilbert had bought Clayt's suitcase, so that he could get a thrill out of hunting for it. Cummings, I knew, had in charge all the boys' Pacific Coast holdings, and since his mother's death during the first year of the war, these were large. Worth manifested toward them and the man who spoke to him of them the indifference, almost contempt, of an impatient young soul, who, in the years just behind him, had often wagered his chance of his morning's coffee against some other fellow's month's pay, feeling that he was putting up double. It seemed the sense of ownership was dulled in one who had seen magnificent properties masterless, or apparently belonging to some limp, blood-stained bundle of flesh that lay in one of the rooms. In vain, Cummings urged the state of the market, repeating with more particularity and force what Whipple had said. The mines were tied up by strike. Their stock, while perfectly good, was down to twenty cents on the dollar. To sell now would be madness. Worth only repeated doggedly. I've got to have the money, Monday morning, ten o'clock. I don't care what you sell or hawk. Get it. See here. The lawyer was puzzled, and therefore unprofessionally out of temper. "'Even sacrificing your stuff in the most outrageous manner, I couldn't realize enough. Not by ten o'clock Monday. You'll have to go to your father. You can cash the five-five for Santa Isabel.' I could see Worth choke back a hot-tempered refusal of the suggestion. The funds he'd got to have, even if he went through some humiliation to get them. "'At that,' he said slowly, Father wouldn't have any great amount of cash on hand. Say I went to him with the story, and took the cat-hauling he'll give me. Should I be much better off?' "'Sure you would.' Cummings leaned back. I saw he considered his point made. Whipple would rather take their own bank stock than anything else. Their father has just acquired a big block of it. Act while there's time. Better go out there and see him now, at once.' "'I'll think about it,' Worth nodded." "'You dig for me what you can, and never quit.' And he applied himself to the demands of the downtown traffic. "'Well,' Cummings said, "'drop me at the next corner, please. "'I've got an engagement with a man here.' Worth swung in and stopped. Cummings left us. As we began to worm a slow way toward my office, I suggested, "'You'll come upstairs with me and, er, sort of outline a policy?' I ought to have any possible information you can give me, so as not to make any more wrong moves than we have to. Information? he echoed, and I hastened to amend. I mean, whatever notion you've got. Your theory, you know. Not a notion, not a theory. He shook his head, eyes on the traffic cop. That's your part. I sat there somewhat flabbergasted. After all, I hadn't fully believed that the boy had absolutely nothing to go on that he had bought purely at a whim, put up $800,000 on my skill at running down a criminal. It sort of crumpled me up. I said so. He laughed a little, ran up to the curb at the Phelan building, cut out the engine, set the brake, and turned to me with, Don't worry. I'm getting what I paid for. Or what I'm going to pay for. And I've got to go right after the money. Suppose I meet you, say, at ten o'clock tonight? Suits me. At Tate's. Reserve a table, will you, and we'll have supper.' "'You're on,' I said, and plenty to do myself meantime. I hopped out on my side. Worth sat in the roadster, not hurrying himself to follow up Cummings' suggestion. The big boy, non-communicative, incurious, the question of fortune, lost or won, seeming not to trouble him at all. I skirted the machine and came round to him, demanding, "'With whom do you suppose Cummings' engagement was?' "'Don't know, Jerry, and don't care,' looking down at me serenely. "'Why should I?' He swung one long leg free and stopped idly, half in the car, half out. "'What if I told you Cumming's engagement was with our friend Dykeman? Only Dykeman doesn't know it yet.' Slowly he brought that dangling foot down to the pavement, followed it with the other, and faced me. Across the blankness of his features shot a joyous gleam, it spread, brightening, till he was radiant. I get you, he chortled. Collusion! They think I'm standing in with Clate. Oh, boy! He threw back his head and roared. End of chapter 2